Thanks for listening to this archive of Teaching American History's first Documents in Detail webinar for the 2020-2021 school year. The focus of tonight's program was the essential anti-federalist essay, Brutus II. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I am professor of history and chair of the Department of History and Political Science at Ashland University. I'm also chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland. Welcome to the first episode of season four of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically important documents. We encourage all of you joining us today to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, and we will try to get to as many of those as possible. Within the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from our book, 50 Core American Documents. Uh, if you don't have a copy of 50 Core American Documents, you should have one. They are also available at the Ashbrook Center's extensive indeed voluminous document database located at tah.org. The subject of today's program is the anti-federalist essay Brutus II. And to help and to help discuss it are Dr. Jason Jividen, Associate Professor of Politics in the McKenna School of Business, Economics, and Government at St. Vincent College and Dr. Adam Seagrave, Associate Director and Associate Professor in the School of Civil, Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, John. Please pardon my wild dogs who need to be uh, eliminated, removed from the room. Uh, it's a beautiful evening here in Ohio and there is activity on the street and therefore it's, they're in a constant state of alert. So, Brutus II, um, I would I'd like to begin, as I usually do, by asking each of you to say a few words about why this document is, uh, is so important. You want me to start? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Well, I, so I think it's, it's really important for a number of reasons. Um, to me, one of the one of the most, uh, you know, the biggest reasons why it's so important is that it does such a good job of uh, laying out the social compact theory that underlies uh, the Constitution and underlies uh, so much of American political thought that um, that more clearly than than almost any other writing I can think of offhand from this era, I think uh, Brutus here really does a good job of of laying out those social compact principles. Uh, that, of course, the Declaration of Independence also stated uh, really clearly. But, um, but you know, wh why it is um, that it matters, um, you know, that a Bill of Rights matters, he connects that to the social compact theory really, really well. Uh, so, I, so I think that's a big reason why, why it's so important um, uh, is that, that he draws that connection and really shows kind of how revolution thoughts, revolutionary era thought, uh, is still really relevant um, at the time of, of the uh, ratification of the Constitution. So 
Um, so that really struck me as I was as I was just rereading it and thinking about it in the context of of um, you know the revolution and the Constitution. Jason, carry yeah. add to that. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. I'd also say in rereading it, what struck me this time around, I teach this from time to time, what struck me this time around was how Brutus alerts us to the fact that you can't really understand a Declaration of Rights in absence from the rest of the Constitution. In fact, the call for the Declaration of Rights is very much a consequence of other clauses in the Constitution, other enumerated powers, other structures, other sort of arrangements of how um, especially Congress is going to work. And so that helps when I'm teaching the Bill of Rights to students for them to understand why are the Anti-Federalists calling for these additional amendments in the first place? It's because of what's already written in the Constitution, both in terms of the powers of Congress, but also other reservations of power uh, in Article 1, Section 9 that Brutus thinks are just incomplete. And so it helps to kind of you know portray the Constitution as a whole. And it's part of this dynamic debate that's going on. And it's going to reflect um, the concerns not only of the people writing it, but those who are, are, are scared of it and worried about it. So I, I think it's very useful, this document. Thank you both. Uh, I admit, th this is uh, is actually the first time I've ever read this document, uh, probably since I'm, I tend to be mired in 20th century stuff. Uh, so I found it pretty fascinating. What can we say to start out with about the background? What were the circumstances un under, under which it was written? Uh, it's happening in New York. Anything that you would like to say about the, the background and context? Well, New York, of course, is, is the state you have to get, right, in order for this to be ratified. And there's a um, already a very healthy sort of anti-federalist um, sentiment that has grown in New York. And, and um, whoever it is that was Brutus, right, there's some historians, you know, as well as anyone debate who these folks might be, but we're pretty sure We've narrowed it down to a few folks, all of whom probably would or could have been at the New York Ratifying Convention. Um, and so there's a background there. Um, there's also, I think, you can't read this paper isolated from some of Brutus's other essays. And the previous essay, Brutus Number 1, really does set the table for what comes in Brutus Number 2. And so when I was thinking about background and context, um, for me, as sort of a political theorist thinking about background um, the big background is just the, the concern about the extended republic that the Constitution helps to create. Um, it's going to take consolidated power to be able to govern that. Um, and there's a large anti-federalist concern with a sort of lack of attachment or sympathy that one would get between citizens and representatives in a small republic. And so if Dr. Moser doesn't want to pay his taxes and he's out on the periphery, um, he has to be bonked on the head to pay his taxes. You have to use a little force to get these things done. And so for me to sort of think about why are they arguing about the Bill of Rights in Brutus number two, it's because of these larger concerns that we see in Brutus number one. And that had been a concern from the get-go with this new constitution, that large republic, small republic debate reverberates through all of the anti-federalist writings. Uh, Brutus probably being the, the most, um, for my money, along with Federal Farmer, maybe the most eloquent and sort of, sort of pitching that background. But I don't know what Adam might want to add to that. <coughs> Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, those are great points. I mean, I think you're right. The context of New York is really important. Um, uh, and it's being, of course, the Federalist Papers, uh, the essays themselves are being published contemporaneously here with Brutus's. So I think, uh, the, you know, the first uh, Federalist uh, essay has been uh, published, and, and I think the second as well, the first two, right, by the time this one appears. But it's, so it's very early on. Uh, but it really... Um, you know, so that that context is relevant in New York. Um, and and I think, um, yeah, I think, too, just the uh, 
the idea of what the Anti-Federalists were for, right? The title of that that uh, really good book by uh, Herbert Storing, right? What the Anti-Federalists were for and how they contributed uh, to the debate uh, over the, the ratification of the Constitution. Um, yeah, the concerns about the extended republic and what they're for is essentially uh, preserving revolution principles yeah, through the Constitution, which, of course, is what the Federalists are for, at least many of them as well. Um, but but the anti-federalists think that they're not that the federalists are not doing that effectively, right? And that the extended republic won't be able to preserve the principles that were fought for in the revolution effectively. So I think that uh, that 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 context is important of showing um, you know here that that the anti-federalists are not only concerned, you know, Brutus is not only concerned about the dangers, uh, but he actually has a positive case to make about the importance of the centrality of rights uh, and the centrality of individual rights, natural rights to the, uh, to the, 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 the plan for government, right? Um, but that has to be absolutely central. And so he sees the absence of a bill of rights as emblematic of a departure from, uh, from revolution principles. Um, so this, this kind of sets the stage also for an ongoing debate throughout the Federalist Papers and the efforts that Madison uh, and Hamilton um, and Jay, of course, too, but especially Madison Hamilton make to to show that the Constitution is, in fact, in line with the principles uh, of the, the revolution. Right. That that becomes an ongoing theme. And I think that that uh, Brutus is really making that point really well early on here. I did, if I could, I'd just add one more thing in, in terms of context. Also, in the background, just the recent rearview mirrors, this is being written, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is. James Wilson's statehouse speech uh, in Philadelphia after the, the PA ratifying convention, which it's a long speech, but part of that speech takes issue with the notion that there's something wrong with omitting a Bill of Rights. He makes the case against adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution, which would show up later um, the following year in, in Federalist 84. Wilson was you know, saying that a year before that paper was even written. So I think that was in October, and these are being written uh, just a few weeks later, uh, these, these first Brutus papers. So... Why was New York such a, a hotbed of anti-federalist sentiment? Adam, you, have any, you want to speak to that one? You might know more than I do about that. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I actually, yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing. You might know more than I do about that. I mean, oh, yeah, okay, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean. Um, you know, yeah, that history is something that that I, you know, I'm not as I'm not as well versed on. I think in terms of why New York. I mean, I uh, I'm trying to think of the most important reasons why that would have been the case. Um, yeah, I don't know that I know that much either. Um, in fact, now I think that I should, but I don't. Well, the leading. I mean, one thing is certainly the leading politicians in New York. I mean, you know, leading politicians in New York were people who had reservations about the Constitution. Um, that's one thing, right? Melanchthon Smith um, and um, and of course Yates and and others were, you know, like in Virginia, right? So you know, it was a close call in Virginia too. You had Patrick right. Henry and George Mason, and so I I think that would that was a big factor that you had prominent leading uh, politicians in New York who you know from uh, you know from from the outset were really suspicious of the Constitution, so. Um, you know, I might say that, you know, that's a, that's a factor, certainly, who was there. Yeah. Yeah, there's those that have a, a bit of political capital and, and can organize the vote uh, in both Virginia and New York um, have large sway. 
So Hamilton is kind of a kind of an outlier for New York. Um, the the introduction suggests that uh, that Brutus too, that Brutus is actually Melanchthon Smith. Uh, how do we how how do they know like? What, what, what are the clues that might tell us it's Melanchthon Smith? And what can you tell us about Melanchthon Smith? Well, it's funny. I was thinking about some of this today, and, and I thought this might come up. I have taught Brutus for years and years, and I've never put a lot of mental energy into researching the the sort of, you know, the aliases, the Clark Kent, as it were, of some of the anti-federalists looking through these things. For years and years, it was common knowledge, or it was assumed that it was Yates, that it was Robert Yates. It's only been in the last several years that Melanchthon Smith is now sort of the, the consensus choice. And my understanding, and, and Dr. Seagrave can correct me if I'm wrong on this, my understanding is over the last few years, they've really just been doing um, content analysis of comparing letters of Melanchthon Smith to the writings of Brutus and finding how similar they are through various algorithms. Um, this is what these you know educated types do, far more educated than me. For years, it was just assumed. In fact, Storing, who brought the anti-federalist papers sort of into the modern academic consciousness, um, had said that it was Yates, as best we knew. There are other people who suggest that it was, um, uh, was it John Williams, I think, from Salem, New York, was another contender for a while. But it's been since I've been teaching uh, for you know the last 20 years or so that Melanchthon Smith um, has become uh, one of the, the, the lead candidates. Um, but... Dr. Seagrave, you might have more to add to that than I certainly. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that sounds right to me. Uh, actually, my, to my old uh, graduate student advisor, uh, Michael Zuckert, uh, wrote a, co co-edited a book with, uh, with Derek Webb, uh, where they try to sort this out, you know, and whether it was Melanchthon Smith. Um, and they, uh, so the, I think the subtitle of that volume is the writings of the Melanchthon Smith circle or something like that, because, uh, essentially, I think what they conclude is that um, that Melanchthon Smith was part of a circle of, of sort of like minded uh, people at the time, you know, like uh, Williams and Yates. And so it's it's, um, you know, it's hard to tell. I think the computational analysis, the algorithms, I think that you're right, that that's sort of how they've uh, determined recently that the, the balance of the evidence is that it was Melanchthon Smith. Um but I think Zuckert and Webb are a little more uh, hedging about whether he actually wrote uh, the Brutus essays himself or whether it was, uh, I mean, what we know is that it was uh, written by uh, someone who was part of this closely corresponding and, and uh, like-minded in many ways uh, circle that, uh, that Melanchthon Smith was a prominent member of. Yeah. And one wonders if it's multiple authors. Uh, that's worth thinking about. I don't know. I have no expertise in that, but worth wondering about. These might be the sorts of questions that tend to fascinate me as a historian that that uh, are, are 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 less interesting to uh, to political theorists. I'm I'm wondering, and and and, and I promise I'm, we'll get we'll get away from context in a little bit. Um, Charles Beard suggested long ago that that really it was uh, whether you were a, a, a federalist or an anti-federalist depended in large part on your uh, material position. Um, based on what we know about the anti-federalists, is it is it fair to say that they represent a, a, a particular set of economic interests that that would not have been served by the Constitution in the way that, that federalists might have been? I realize that Charles Beard's been exploded many times over, but I'm I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity to pile on. Well, I don't think it's crazy to say that that folks have 
economic motives that pertain to their own particular situation, right? I think I think in order to take issue with with Beard, one doesn't have to throw self-interest out the window, right? There are certainly economic interests associated with the farming class, associated with the small republic. Those things are going to be there. What where Beard made his misstep was talking about these things as if they were sort of uh, monolithic, right? That you could be subsumed under some single overriding economic interest. And part of what Beard got beat up for from Forrest McDonald and others was to say that, yes, there are some identifiable interests. So what's so amazing on both sides of, of these debates is how much those interests were cross-cutting, how much those interests had to deliberate and had to come together to form coalitions. And it's it's hard to speak about just the, you know, the sort of uh, the manufacturers versus the farmers, the few versus the many or the haves versus the have-nots or any of that. So I think there's a kernel of truth in, in some of what Beard is saying, but he tries to force it into this, frankly, at the time of Marxist framework that just didn't quite capture reality. Um, but just to say that there aren't the decided economic interests that help us understand uh, anti-federalist politics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, picking up on, on what Jason says, that it's the problem is in thinking that economic interests are determinative in one's uh, position and in the, the, the politics that they advocate, you know, at this time and whether you're in favor of the Constitution or opposed to it. Yeah, that it's one thing to say that, that they, there's an influence there. It's another thing to say that it's a determinative influence. Um, and and so I think that's right, that many anti-federalist uh, leaders, uh, you know, they they could have, it seems. I mean, Melanchthon Smith, for example, right, was a, you know, he was a successful uh, businessman and, um, you know, could have certainly capitalized on uh, on the, the existence of a, a powerful central government for his own benefit if he had if he had wanted to, you know, early on. I think that that's probably the case that um, that if you threw your lot in with the nationalists, you could capitalize in various ways economically or if you threw your lot in with the uh, the anti-federalists, you know, the federalists or the anti-federalists. Um, that 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 may have an economic interest for you as well, but I don't think that there was any right any determinative sort of across the board um, economic interest that uh, that that determined whether you would be a federalist or an anti federalist. I think um, yeah, I think it was just a far fetched uh, thesis in that way. Although at, at a basic level, of course, we know economic interests affect people's decision making all the time. So it's just the problem is thinking of it as determinative. I think. We have a couple of questions from uh, from attendees. I'm, I'm going to uh, give you both of these at the same time. Uh, Stan Masters asked, was part of the apprehension of the Constitution in New York based upon the lingering failures of the Articles of Confederation? Uh, and then Mark Baker asks, would the fact that New York had more than most had more than most to lose since since it's a large state make it predominantly anti-federalist? And did perhaps that New York City was pro-British play a role in the in the state's anti-federalism? Anti yeah, writing writing all of those down here. So, um, so the the size of New York, I think that's um, that's it. That's a fair point. I mean, we see uh, so the states the states with the most contentious and close ratification votes, certainly a couple of them were the, the largest, uh, you know, Virginia and New York being the two that I'm thinking of right now. So that's, um, that's possible. I mean, and, and uh, uh, yeah, that they, they might have felt the need for a, a union less urgently in some ways than some of the, some of the smaller states or less populous states. I think that's possible. 
Um, the connection to New York's New York being pro-British during the the revolution, and um, you know that that connection, I guess I'm less, um, you know, I, I would be less persuaded by. I, I think that that seems more of a stretch to me. Um, that that loyalist sentiment, say during the revolution, would lead to uh, directly to anti-federalist sentiment during the ratification debates. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be a strong link, uh, but those are just a couple of initial thoughts there. Yeah, on the last point, I'd agree. Um, I don't see any necessary connection between um, suspicion of the new constitution or supporting the articles and pro, pro-British sentiment. Um, on the first question about the lingering failures of the articles, my first, my gut reaction is what's interesting about that is it cuts both ways. And it cut both ways in all sorts of states, New York being an example. The lingering failures of the articles could lead to at least one of two positions, right? One is to say, well, they're shot. And so what are we going to do? We're going to devise an entirely new constitution. Um, another way to say is, well, we have to look before we leap. And that's a big part of what Brutus counsels. Actually, throughout Brutus's papers, Brutus says, this is a big decision we're making. Let's all take a breath and calm down. Think about what Madison and the gang were doing. They're saying you have to make this decision right now. Otherwise, we're sliding off a cliff. At every turn, in order to slow things down, this is a political calculation. Brutus and the gang are saying, let's think this through. It's a big decision. So there, I think the lingering concerns of the articles are enough to make us worry about novelty and worry about innovation and worry about changing. But there's another argument, which is to say, it can't get much worse than this. So why not roll the dice? And so you would have that debate in New York with those extremes, just as you would have in Virginia and elsewhere. Um, Isn't it that it didn't Yates, I mean, it's as far as we're talking about Yates, didn't Yates leave the convention? out of disgust. I think Yates went with Hamilton early and then hightailed it out of there because the argument was this wasn't what we were sent here in New York to do. Obviously, Hamilton disagreed. And those two, in some ways, could sort of represent that dichotomy. What are we here to do in Philadelphia? So I think that that question could cut both ways. Uh, Another participant question. Uh, Doesn't the fact of the need to compromise economic factional interests at the convention refute beer? And does it not also support Madison's idea of Federalists 10 and 51 if faction candidates, uh, if, if candidates faction in a large, okay, I don't quite understand what, uh, in, if, if, all right, about faction in a large republic, let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, I think it does refute Beard. I think that's, I think that's in a lot of ways what McDonald was able to show and others um, that the, as far as we can understand the coalitions that were made at the convention, it actually speaks counter to what Beard was trying to argue. A really close look at the convention would actually refute Beard rather than support him. Insofar as that represents somehow Madison's notion of multiplicity of interests, et cetera, there's a likeness there, but but Madison's dynamic and the mechanism he's talking about is is that same dynamic could take place in a debate in a convention, but Madison's talking about that taking place in a large national legislature. But the same kind of reasoning could be the same, that um, compromise necessarily shaves off the rough edges of proposals and shaves off the extremes of what you get is the moderate compromise position that everybody can live with. And so there, there might be something to that comparison, but I would say it's an analogy as much as anything. Adam, any, anything to add to that or... Uh, no, I think I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, with with both of those points. Um, yeah. So right, right. More as an analogy that that uh, that it's true. Um, you saw in the convention as well. It's true. You saw some shifting, you know, shifting lines of the of debates that that do sort of on a small microcosm level uh, mirror what Madison says could occur 
on the, the national level in terms of people belonging to different factions, right? Uh, first, you know, you might, might be a small state, large state kind of uh, um, uh, battle line that's drawn, and then later it shifts a bit. You have, you know, slave states and uh, and, and non-slave states arguing various things, and um, and individuals taking positions that uh, that are on, you know, shifting shifting ground throughout the the convention debates uh, based on the issue. So I think that you see uh, over the course of the convention, you do see kind of a microcosm of that federalist ten uh, sort of multiplicity of interest thing going on. But um, but yeah, it's definitely not not exactly the same thing because we're talking about you know a group of fifty uh, some people versus a uh, a huge uh, political society. So yeah. Uh, Tom Folletti asks, uh, does Brutus's emphasis on rights mean he would have thought he won in the end since we got a Bill of Rights? Or is this just an easy argument for him that hid a deeper resistance to the new Constitution? I'll let Adam start on that one. He, he's, he's done quite a bit of work on, on rights. Uh, curious yeah. what you think. Yeah, yeah. So, so does Brutus Brutus's emphasis on rights? So, yeah, did, did he win when the Bill of Rights was was added? Uh, when those amendments were added, or or would he still have been opposed to the new Constitution on the basis of other or deeper or broader concerns? I think, yeah, that's that's an interesting um, question. Um, I think so. Of course, there were other anti-federalist concerns beyond the Bill of Rights. Right, that wasn't the only thing that they were concerned with. And other concerns with uh, with the extended republic, um, with the centralization of political power, and with um, with the you know with, with all sorts of things, representation, the inability to uh, to to have a republic over the uh, the you know extent of the entire territory of the United States. So, so I think that certainly you know many of the other deeper anti-federalist concerns remain. Um, but I do think that a Bill of Rights was a major victory, and that Brutus would have seen it that way as, you know, along the lines that, that Madison uh, explains later in his defense of the Bill of Rights, that it set up sort of a maxims of a free society that could be pointed to and looked to in the future to show kind of the, uh, the centrality of rights to uh, the American conception of government that I think that that, you know, that was a real victory and the Brutus uh, would have, you know, seen it that way. Um, and um, so I think I think that's right. Although, of course, you know, the way in which the Bill of Rights has served to educate American citizens about their rights over the course of uh, the last couple of centuries, you know, I think it hasn't necessarily worked out exactly that way that, that Madison had hoped um, or that Brutus would have hoped. Um, but um but I do think that it wasn't merely a hollow victory for the Bill of Rights to be added. I think that was a real significant achievement. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think, to my understanding, uh, both Smith and Yates came to support the Constitution with the promise of amendments. Once the New York Convention was headed in that direction, they tossed their support behind it. Um, in that sense, uh, getting these, you know, these amendments to the Constitution would have been seen as a victory. I'm with Adam, though, and in, in thinking it, it wouldn't be an unqualified or sort of unmitigated victory because there's so much there in the Constitution that the Anti-Federalists would still be concerned about. Uh, Brutus is very consistent in saying that the reason we need these amendments, like the things we already have in Article 1, Section 9, are more explicit reservations because of these 
these very pregnant clauses in the Constitution that would seem to aggrandize the power of Congress. And he has especially in mind things like the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, um, uh, taxing and spending power. Those things are still there in the Constitution. That consolidation with which he's concerned is still there. So merely getting the amendments is not the perfect victory. It's the the middle position, the best that we can get when the writing's on the wall. And so what they're trying to do is to temper or defang that, that centralized power to some degree. And that's where I think Adam really points to something important. The way in which that worked out in the 20th century, I think, is certainly not what the anti-federalists had in mind. Um, the Bill of Rights has been used um, by the courts and, and, and by Congress, but especially by the courts to, in some ways, um, bolster the power of the general government at the expense of the states. And we can argue whether that's good or bad and pluses and minuses and virtues and vices. But I think it's just objectively true that the Bill of Rights has been one window whereby the power of the states has been curtailed to some degree. And I think you ask any self-respecting anti-federalist, why have a Bill of Rights? It was to protect the power of the states against the general government. And so the, the story that's been told, the story as it's evolved is a little different, I think, than what, what he would have had in mind. So um, a victory in a sense, uh, but not, I think, an unqualified yeah, and if maybe I could just yeah, just to pick up on that, I think those are good points. And the the role of the courts, right? That was another thing that Brutus was very concerned with, the role of the federal courts and the Supreme Court in consolidating the power of the national government, right? And that consolidation. So I think that's you know, that's a, an important point to point to as well. Um and also uh yeah, as, as Jason says, you know, the, the Bill of Rights was a way of um was a way of combating the, this general problem of consolidation and, a, and a, a national government that was going to be too big and powerful. And so a Bill of Rights was an important victory in that it did kind of put that um, put that barrier in place, right, or a potential barrier in place to this overriding power of the national government. But one thing that Brutus points to, which is really, really interesting and important, that he's one of the few to, to, to say this, is that the adoption of the new Constitution would essentially entail um, – a change to all of the existing state constitutions insofar as it would be a new social compact that would be signed onto by the people of the United States. And so it would necessarily entail an alteration in the social compact that had established the state constitutions and the state governments. And he points to that explicitly. And that's something that uh, Madison will actually later point to in the, the debate over uh, nullification uh, when he says uh, he argues basically that that um, the nullification is is not permitted because the state because the constitutional compact um, altered these the state level compacts such that you know in the supremacy clause of the constitution for example right that this is a uh, it, it it's redoing the governments of the states as well right it's not just a new national government it's redoing the the state compact so I think. So Brutus points to that, and that's part of the reason why he thinks the Bill of Rights is so important, because of the fact that we're we're doing so much with this new constitution. It's not just an additional government, it's remaking all of our governments. If I could just chime in really quickly, I think that's a fantastically important point, that Brutus and many anti-federalists, federal farmer also, seem to get the constitution in a way that I think later compact theorists of the, of the 19th century didn't quite understand. Part of the reason the anti-federalists are concerned with the Constitution is because it creates a truly national government. It, there is this lingering sovereignty with the states. The states are still there, but it creates a truly sovereign government. If you look through all those passages in Brutus too, he says these are complete sovereign powers we're talking about. Um, that's why you have to have a Bill of Rights. And so I think it's interesting to compare. We always talk about the sort of um, 
Confederate tradition somehow lingering in the tradition of the anti-federalists. But if you look at the anti-federalists, they're telling you precisely this is a national constitution. That's why you should fear it. And so the history that gets told a little bit later, I think, is twisted a bit. I think the anti-federalists understand precisely what um, the convention was up to in Philadelphia. Uh, let, this is we're we're already talking about the the, the uh, substance of, uh, of of the argument here. Uh, why does he think it's so important? Let's deal with the first part before he starts responding to James Wilson's arguments. Why does he? This is the section on social contract theory. How does he use social contract theory to establish the importance of including a bill of rights in the Constitution? Well, the, the tradition that they're working under was that not all, but many of the state constitutions had declarations of rights stuck onto the front of them. And Adam spoke to this a little bit already. It, we tend to think of bills of rights today as being these sort of justiciable checklists for courts, but that's not really the only purpose and maybe not even the main purpose they serve. What, what declarations of rights had always traditionally done was to define um, moral and theoretical standards of what a political community says. These are the things we feel are most important. These are the things you shall do and shall not do to us. And so I think he starts that not only sort of working within that tradition to say, look, we all already believe this. We've inherited this. We, we believe in declarations of rights. But I think the other thing is there's a, a, a theoretical, there's a political philosophy argument going on here, which is why do we need bills of rights? Because we, we think limited government is just government. Why do we think limited government is just government? Because we believe that all men are created equal, that nobody has a natural claim to rule over anyone else without that person's consent. What are those things like the Virginia Declaration of Rights? What are those first principles? They're statements of natural equality. They're statements of government by consent. And importantly, they're statements of inalienable rights. And that whole discussion he has of contract theory, if you notice where it winds up, he says, there are certain things we cannot ever be understood to have consented away, right? Rights of conscience being the number one example of this in all of these founding era rights. Um, I think that's the link. There's there's a practical link, a historical link to say we've always said these things, but there's also a, a very moral theoretical argument that ties that social contract section of the letter to the later practical sections of here are the things we think should be written. Adam. Yeah, no, I think I agree with all that. I think those are yeah, great, great points. And uh, Jason did a good job of explaining this. Um, yeah, the example of the, the state's constitutions with declarations of rights, uh, you know, coming before the Constitution and the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Uh, for George Mason, who wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights, um, was also uh, someone who didn't sign uh, the, the Constitution, right, and later poses it for largely for that, for this reason that, you know, it didn't, um, again, it, it, it was important to many of the anti-federalists to maintain that uh, centrality of revolution principles to uh, the new constitution. And so I think they were worried that that wasn't happening. Um, so in other words, that the, the social compact uh, principles and principles of individual natural rights that were the, the basis of American independence uh, they thought those weren't sufficiently reflected in in, in the, the new constitution um, as they had been in the state constitutions previously. Um, so I think that was their their worry, and I think it was a really prescient uh, worry as well, because um, because I think now we look back and and uh, even with the Bill of Rights as we have it appended to the Constitution as amendments, um, the way in which uh, we tend to interpret and view them as um, as rights that courts, you know, will adjudicate and um, 
and and sort of protect individuals from from particular violations of these rights. I think that's only part of the part of the uh, importance of of the Bill of Rights in the minds of people like Brutus and George Mason and others. I think the other part of it is showing, hey, these are the these are the principles that are running going to run through the entire Constitution that are going to inspire the entire Constitution. Right? They're not just particular limitations of power. They are that, but they're more than that. They're inspirations. Um, so I think that. Uh, that that's the connection there, that the political theory that had inspired the revolution uh, was was meant to also inspire the constitution-making process. Um, and many Federalists, of course, also believe that. I think Madison, you know, of course, thought that was very important, um, and Hamilton as well. But, uh, but I think that that's the basis uh, on which Brutus is arguing here, that he thinks that that's not uh, sufficiently the case, that those principles have not sufficiently inspired uh, the Constitution and the future generations will forget, you know, how how closely connected these two things are, the principles of the revolution with the, the Constitution. Jen Jolly asks, what is your favorite passage or line from this essay? Oh, that's a good, good question, yeah. Yeah, I'll just say my favorite passage was precisely the passage we were just talking about, that large paragraph on the social contract. Um, in part, because for me, as, as much as we like to talk about, all oh, the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists, we, we often overlook the forest for the trees, and we don't understand that a lot of them, a lot of the big principles, the big theoretical principles, these folks agreed. They all believed in the principles of the revolution. They all believed we wanted a democratic republic, but they disagreed vehemently about the best means to secure these principles. And so when you see a really nice, succinct, and clear passage in the Anti-Federalists that could read exactly like Hamilton or Madison, because Hamilton or Madison could have written a very similar passage about the importance of natural rights and social contract. I think it helps put these things into context. So I had not read this paper for a little while before I was preparing for this event, and that really stuck it stood out to me this time, just how clear and succinct that passage was. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's an important point to keep in mind that yeah, when we read the anti-federalist and federalist debates, uh, that it, it, there were so many principles, important principles that they held in common that, that they agreed on. Um, so I think that's, and that is striking and important to remember. Um, it's an important defining feature of that debate that they held certain principles in common. But yeah, I like, so the way that he restates the, the Declaration of Independence, essentially the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, um, in early on in the essay, that, that restatement of it, I think, is just really excellent and clear and is a good sort of elaboration on what the Declaration of Independence means. So, for example, he says, uh, all men are by nature free, um, which is, you know, a restatement of all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but in some ways, I think it's, uh, you know, if not better, it's at least an important explanation of what that means, of what equality means in the Declaration, that it means equality and freedom. And so I think that the way the way that Brutus explains that by saying all men are by nature free, um, and I think by nature as well is, a, is an important um, sort of elaboration on the declarations all men are created, right? So so I think that there, there are different ways of interpreting what uh, that, that, you know, reference to the creator means. But I think by nature is an important elaboration on what uh, the declaration means there. So so that's a really important line, I think. And just that whole restatement, as, as Jason says, I think it's a really um, a concise, clear uh, explanation of, of common principles that were held at the time by both anti-federalists and federalists. 
Mark Mark Baker asks, how does the Constitution? Sorry, how does the convention debate over whether the Constitution was a compact between the national government and the people, as opposed to the states, play a role in this debate over the social contract? Well, you know, Adam had mentioned Herbert Storing earlier, who has this fantastic book. Um, you know, the way we read the Anti-Federalist Papers is a collection, and Storing had helped compile those and wrote an introduction to it. And years later, they took that introduction, published a little book called What the Anti-Federalists Were For. And it's one of those books we always recommend um, to students and teachers. It's just a fantastic read on the Anti-Federalists. And one thing I know that Storing says in there, and I don't remember where, but it's in there, was that this debate over the Bill of Rights um, shows how much ground the anti-federalists had already lost. Once you're arguing about reserving powers against this general government, you're no longer talking about a confederated government like what we had under the Articles of Confederation. You've already shown by simply engaging this debate that you're giving over quite a lot to the idea that this is a national government created through a compact of the people um, rather than a compact of the states. And so I think I think just the mere fact that this is on the page um, shows how that convention debate influences this, and it shows you just how um, the anti-federalists are fighting on their heels, I think. But I don't know what Dr. Seagrave want to add to that. But I think Dorian argues that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right. That's a good point. Um, yeah. So I think uh, that another clarification would be that according to Brutus's account here, uh, you know, the the social compact. I mean, it's it's not so it's not a compact between the states as states. It's also not a compact between the national government uh, and the people. Um, I think he's following Locke here when he says that it's a compact among those who associate, right? So among the individuals um, who, who are associating. So and that's that's a uh, you know a subtle but important difference between Locke's social compact theory and Hobbes's social compact theory. In that, for Hobbes, the social contract is a is an agreement between. Uh, the people and the government, whereby the people surrender their authority to the government. Uh, whereas for Locke, the social compact is an agreement among individuals, among the people associating with each other. Um, and then they delegate uh, in trust their, their sovereignty to a government. And this is something that uh, actually James Wilson is on the other side of the, the Bill of Rights debate. He, he puts it really well in his uh, December 4th speech in the uh, Pennsylvania ratifying convention. He talks about how um, how the people are sovereign, right? So sovereignty isn't a problem, uh, according to Wilson in this speech. You know, in terms of you know states being sovereign, national government being sovereign, because that's not a problem because the people are sovereign, and they never gave that up. Uh, the people remain sovereign. They just delegate portions of their sovereignty to these different governments, to the, the state governments, the national government. Um, and so that, you know, the divided sovereignty idea that also is reflected in some of the Federalist Papers. But um, but yeah, so I think that's that's the compact that, you know, James Wilson sees and, and Brutus and other anti-Federalists see occurring with the Constitution, uh, which, again, yeah, they they view this as re remodeling the state level compacts as well as sort of a whole new social compact. Um, uh, well, a new uh, yeah, a new social compact among the people of the various states and then a delegation of some of their sovereignty to the new national government. So I think Brutus sees that and other anti-federalists see that uh, more clearly um, than many, yeah, as we've said, many people later do. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, I, and it's not a, a common, you know, that's not a consensus at the time, I guess, right? So they agree on certain principles, 
but it's not clear what sort of compact is uh, is happening, I think, to, to everybody at the time. Um, and I think that confusion does play out, you know, as we get closer to the Civil War, that confusion becomes really, really intense and the disagreement about what the, the nature of the compact was. But yeah, certainly already, you know, in the time of the convention and, and now the ratification debates, there isn't, I don't think, widespread agreement on what sort of compact uh, the Constitution represented. And I could be wrong about that, but I think there's not widespread agreement there. I think that's exactly right. I was commenting really quickly. I, I think that ambiguity is used uh, rhetorically and, and taken advantage of rhetorically and politically by both sides of the debate. I think even Madison engages in the Federalist Papers in a little bit of, not sleight of hand, but de-emphasizing here, de-emphasizing there, and, and appealing to that ambiguity um, for political reasons, which is certainly understandable. These are politicians. Yeah, I think Federalist 39 is really a good place where you see Madison doing that, that second half of Federalist 39, where, you know, the certain parts of the, the, the Constitution, the government that are national and the parts that are federal. And uh, what he says about the ratification process there, I mean, I think that's just the prime example of what you just referred to about kind of hedging back and forth rhetorically. Um, to the extent that you can tell me this, what was the effect of this essay? Uh, is, is there any evidence that it moved the needle on public opinion in New York or elsewhere? I don't know. Adam, do you, do you know anything about that? I, I don't know that much about saying this particular essay. You know, the next day, public opinion shifts, you know, on a dime. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if anybody really knows it to that level of detail, right, how much this this particular essay, I mean, I think that, you know, generally, we can say certainly the the uh, persuasiveness of the anti-federalist writings that were published, you know, at the time, at the, during this time, um, certainly seem to have had had an effect, right? That uh, that New York uh, was not uh, by no means persuaded um, in a in a sort of um, general way by the Federalist Papers, they remained divided, you know. So, despite the fact that you had the Federalist Papers being published simultaneously. Uh, by the, the likes of Madison and Hamilton in New York, um, that still you had incredible division of opinion um, in New York. That's, so I think that that speaks to the general influence of writings like this and of the anti-federalist writings. But but yeah, to, to the level of detail, I, I can't really speak to that much either. Uh, I just chime in one more time too. I mean, um, thanks to James Madison and a few others, we we eventually got a Bill of Rights. I mean, some of some of these papers that are suggesting yes we will we will we'll truck and barter we will we will support this constitution with the promise of amendments um it's striking that james madison who himself was more on the side of wilson and hamilton with regard to um at best ambivalence about a bill of rights comes to understand at least with his constituents in virginia um that we're not going to get a constitution if we don't play ball on a bill of rights and then you know hilarity ensues and we know he he uh, he constructs the Bill of Rights that maybe isn't exactly what Bruce and others would have wanted, but the fact that Madison and others have to play ball in the 11th hour, to me, shows the influence of maybe not this particular paper, but that argument in general. Uh, that that kind of gets me to my, to my next question. Uh, the Anti-Federalists, of course, lobbed lots of, lots of shells at, 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 the, uh, at the proposed Constitution. Why is this the one... The issue with the Bill of Rights, why is this the one that gained traction? Well, I think, uh, so one, 
So one, yeah, one thing would be to to revisit the point we made about the u- ubiquity of declarations of rights and bills of rights um, in in the state constitutions. Um, also, you know, it, we you know you can connect that to the longer tradition of uh, British you know British liberty and and thinking um, that that preceded it, right? So the English Bill of Rights, the Petition of Right, the Magna Carta. You know, uh, uh, Hamilton refers to these things in Federalist 84 when he's arguing against the Bill of Rights. Um, and he, he makes a really, really interesting, uh, uh, important argument there. But um, but I think that there's a long there, there's such a long tradition of, um, of of viewing, you know, a declaration of rights as central to the operation of limited government. Um, that I think that the fact that wasn't there. Uh, marked such a departure from the tradition, not only of the state constitutions, but of the the British uh, history that preceded it, and and to which, of course, uh, the Americans at this time are still very much um, connected. Yeah, I think there's, I think that's all. I agree with all of that. I, I think that would be, by my understanding, my reading, that would be the number one reason is there's this long tradition of Declaration of Rights that we were already accustomed to. Um, there's also sort of. How is it that so many anti-federalists, especially those who were already suspicious of this new general government, why is this the issue that really took up all the steam? Well, one reason is because it's a stalling technique. Even with the principled arguments, even with all of that, we are talking eventually what has to be amendments, what have to be amendments. And so part of the reason Madison and the gang, uh, and they're pretty upfront about it, we don't have time. Well, we need to strike while the iron is hot. Everyone knows who's ever been involved in student government or a committee meeting or any kind of, you know, deliberative process. One way you can slow things down and help to shore up opposition to something is by delaying the vote. And so when you start talking about the amendment process, I think one reason this got just for a very practical reason in the short term, it was a way to slow the process down. And um, who doesn't want to talk about rights? You know, you say, well, there's no jury trial in civil cases. Well, hey, that's a good point, right? And you start talking about these things and slowing down the political process. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. They can go hand in hand. You can have principled arguments and have political arguments at the same time. But I think this issue was the one that the anti-federalists saw. This is the way um, to get some of what we want and also to slow the process down. Okay. Uh, we got a couple more questions. Uh, one is from Candy Collins. Hi, Candy. Uh, th- this, this question is about five minutes old. She says... Does this argument, and I think uh, by this argument she means the argument over sovereignty, become the most important one for New York, more so than slavery, the powers of the president, or the Great Compromise? I don't. I don't, I don't know. You know, politically, in terms of the debate, I just don't know enough about um, what specifically is being said. I would think theoretically, anyone worth their salt would understand that at bottom, one of the most fundamental arguments in terms of principle and its consequences would be the sovereignty argument. I think to think about the nature of this union, the nature of this new constitution. But I'm not of a, enough of an expert on the the New York ratifying convention to know, you know specifically what is said regarding those things and sort of ranking them. Um, I would think that the sovereignty question, though, would in some ways underline or underlie um, any argument about the Great Compromise, um, because you're talking there about the relationship between representing states as states and the general government and representing individuals. So there's a sovereignty question that's sort of underlying a lot of this, and certainly the sovereignty question is underlying any debate that we have about slavery, um, because it's a question of what is a general government entitled to do 
to, with, and about slavery in those sovereign states. So it's hard for me to separate them out. But again, I don't know the convention well enough to know. I don't know if Dr. Seagrave has anything he could add to that. No, actually not, not really. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, but you, the general points sound, uh, sound right to me. Um, yeah, that's that issue of sovereignty and, you know, consolidation, uh, versus confederation, you know, that, that, that is, is pretty central here and it does underlie a lot of these other points as well. So, um, so I, yeah, I think that that's a good, um, yeah, a good way of, of encapsulating a lot of, a lot of what was of concern there. Um, the slavery issue, that's an interesting question in terms of, the relative level of importance um, that that would have held in New York, um, and that's that's a question though. Yeah, again, I can't speak to in depth, uh, but but again, I would I would guess that that uh, wouldn't have been as general as general of a, uh, of, a of an issue as the the sovereignty consolidation issue for most of the anti federalists or people opposing the Constitution in um, in in New York. Um, so. So that's an interesting one that I'd actually like to look into more. But uh, but yeah, that sounds, sounds right. Just really quickly, one, one of the best criticisms of the three-fifths compromise is made by Brutus. Um, and one, I can't remember which paper it is, but the New York Anti-Federalist saw the three-fifths compromise as a sham, right? And basically stacking the deck in favor of the slave interest, which for my students often blows their mind because they've always been taught, well, the, the Southern interest is the legacy of the Anti-Federalist. Not for New York Anti-Federalists. They'll certainly tell you there's something wrong with the three-fifths compromise. Uh, Greg Ferguson asks, was Brutus II the first argument for a Bill of Rights during the ratification process? I don't know if, uh, yeah, Jason, if you have more exact information on this, was it the first argument for Bill of Rights during the ratification process? Um, so it's certainly an early one. Uh, I don't I don't know, and it'd be tough to claim, though, that it was the first published argument for Bill of Rights? Probably not, right? And uh, by this point in November, trying to think of what is out there beforehand, um, I'm not I, I'm not immediately thinking of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to go back and look, to be honest with you, some of the papers. I mean, we'd be down to a here a matter of months, right, and going back. I mean, you could look at Federal Farmer gets into this a bit, Agrippa. Um, there's several papers, and so I'd have to, frankly, I just have to go back and look. I would always hesitate to say, is this the first thing ever? Probably not, right? We could probably find one somewhere else, but it is um, part of the reason we study it is it is among the, the best arguments and the most succinct and thoughtful arguments that were made during that process. But as far as being the first, I'm not sure. Uh, in the brief time we have left, I like to, to end these with, uh, with a question because we've got 64 participants out there. Um, most, if not all of whom are teachers. Uh, give us your best brief argument for why they should find time in their curriculum to, uh, to include this document. Well, I would start just first of all with, with something most of you understand, which would be uh, any time we can have to use primary source documents uh, with students is, is worth the time. This particular document, I think, I, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think that Brutus's essays are among the most um, perceptive of the anti-federalist essays, and uh, not just this essay, but all of the, the Brutus essays. But I think if you really want to understand the debate over the inclusion of a Declaration of Rights in the Constitution, you have to compare um, this paper and maybe Federalist 84, if you use those two together as kind of a point-counterpoint 
Because I've found for students, it's extremely hard for them to ever understand um, that debate because who could possibly be against a Bill of Rights? And so we often will use Federal State 84 to show that argument. But you have to have the foil. You have to have the other side. And I found that students will almost always agree with Brutus. And frankly, I find myself often agreeing with Brutus on some of these questions, recognizing all the while how important that argument is in Federal State 84. But I think if you're going to use documents in class and, and have students think about two sides of an argument, you pair this with Federal State 84, you can get a lot of traction out of that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that pairing. I think, uh, yeah, this with Federal State 84 is, is one of the best ways to teach the debate over the Bill of Rights. And yeah, it is such an important debate. It's such a, uh, you know, right, it's something you take so for granted that we have a Bill of Rights and that you would support it. But it's a very illuminating debate for students. Um because it's unexpected, and then it really teaches you something when you unearth the reasons for, for the debate and the reasons on either side. Um, it, and it helps you see how, as we were saying, the common principles that the anti-federalists held with the federalists, um, and yet how they disagreed on sort of subsequent issues, important issues, but subsequent issues to that. Um, and I think so in, in terms of making the case for, for this Brutus essay in particular, you know, it's short. Um, it's short. It's You don't have to excerpt it. It's clear, it's concise. You know, I think the, the language and the, the sentence structure is a little more accessible than some other writings of the time. Um, and it does, you know, it's one of the, the very best. Uh, you know, it's hard, it might be, in my mind, maybe the best uh, writing of the time that, um, that really connects the social compact theory with the constitution-making uh, process and it connects the revolution principles with the, the founding era principles of, of the Constitution, um, you know, I, it really does a good job of doing that. So I think being short, concise, clear, and making those important connections, I think it's, a, it's an excellent choice. And then pairing with Federalist 84, which, uh, yeah, as Jason said, is really a, a persuasive argument, you know, on the other side. Um, I think that that's a, that's a really good pairing. Um, and I, you know, I would add in there, I don't know, I think I would add in some James Wilson just because, uh, you know, he's so important in this debate, too. So if you're going to teach Brutus, I, I, I would think pairing with uh, some of James Wilson's, yeah, obviously the context before in the Statehouse speech, but also the uh, the speech he gives in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention about uh, popular sovereignty, I think is really important too, to pair with uh, this Bill of Rights debate. So, yeah, it's a great one. So uh, we're about out of time. I want to thank both of our panelists, uh, Adam and Jason, as well as uh, our participants who uh, gave some really uh, some, some great questions to, to think about and talk about. Uh, as a reminder, you'll be receiving an email within the next week, which will include a link for a certificate of participation. In fact, my wife will be the one who will be sending that out, I believe. It will also contain a link to the archived webinar, which we hope you will share with your colleagues uh, and also, please share it on social media. Help get the word out about our programs. If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online or in-person, once COVID-19 passes, graduate course in our MAG program. You can find more information about our online course offerings, as well as many other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will take place on Wednesday, September 23rd, when our topic will be James Madison's speech on the proposed amendments to the Constitution. 
Joining me to discuss it at that time will be David Alvis of Wofford College and Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston. We look forward to seeing you back here on September 23rd. So until then, have a terrific evening. Thanks again for listening. You can learn more about our documents-focused programs and resources at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org.